Verse 24 says this, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market, asking no questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all its fullness. It's quoting from Psalm 24. If any of those who do not believe invite you to dinner and you to desire to go, eat whatever is set before you, asking no questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this was offered to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one <coughs> who told you and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. Again, Psalm 24. Conscience, I say, not your own, but that the other. For why is my liberty judged by another man's conscience? But if I partake with thanks, why am I evil spoken of for the food over which I give thanks? Therefore, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I pray now that your word would burst open and come alive. Lord, that powerfully you would minister, that you would revolutionize our hearts and our minds, that you would speak profoundly in this time. May we have so much fun in your word. May we learn in your word. May we grow in your word. May we become more like you. Seek, save, serve, just strengthen, equip, challenge, exhort. Just don't leave us alone. And let your word, Lord, color in the black and white. May it just be that we get it tonight. Open our eyes and our hearts and our minds and our ears and let us, Lord, really get it tonight. And thank you. Thank you for what you're doing already in this room tonight. Thank you for the privilege of every person here that you know by name. Lord, speak to each of us right where we need to hear you tonight. We give you command over all of this. There's nothing for you to hijack. It's already yours. So Lord, now we ask that you would just lead us now. In Jesus' name. Amen. I would say tonight as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it be true if I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority for which you test all things. This isn't my show. This is Jesus's. This whole text uh, may seem a little less relevant, perhaps, if you're the kind that doesn't think you'll ever eat meat sacrificed to idols. How many of you in here are confident you've eaten meat sacrificed to idols? Perfect. Okay. Okay. Maybe that was probably Bruno. Um, <clears throat> Tends not to, we tend to look at this and we read this and go, okay, this is one of those cultural things. We kind of get the idea here. Uh, we do live in a country, by the way, where you're probably aware of it, that that kind of thing does take place. But I want you to kind of go back and get reference to all of this first. Go back for the moment in your Bible. Sorry. Um, you know, some of us are late bloomers. It took me, I don't know, however many years. First Corinthians chapter 8 for a moment. Look at verse 1. Notice it starts with now concerning things offered to idols. Look, go back a chapter to chapter 7. Look at the first verse. Now concerning the things that you wrote to me. 
this book breaks up into two very easy, tidy portions. It's a rather simple book that way. Paul had planted the church roughly five years ago in Corinth, now in Ephesus, teaching at the school of Tyrannus, and he gets a letter from, uh, assumedly brought by Stephanus, Portinanus, and Achaicus, three guys from the church. They show up with this letter, and the letter basically says some symptoms. Hey, our church seems pretty messed up. It's basically become a three-ring circus. There's all kinds of people that are, you know, we've got all these divisions all of a sudden. Uh, We've got all these people that are, I'm of Paul, I'm of Cephas, you know, um, which is Peter, Kephas. Um, oh, I'm just Jesus. You know, we've got these, we've got these people arguing over that. You've got people that are, it's all about the flesh fest. Um, spiritual gifts have turned into this crazy who could be more spiritual contest. Ironic. And Paul is going to respond to that in those first six chapters by saying, well, this is actually quite a very simple prognosis. You are your carnal. You need to stop looking like the world and you need to start letting and becoming more like Jesus. And then on the other side of it, starting in chapter 7, the second portion of it, it's only like questions for Pastor Paul. And so Paul is, ask, is answering these questions. Chapter 7 was sort of this, hey, so is it really okay to be married? I mean, if the Lord's coming back, I mean, well, can we marry and have kids until then? Is that okay? And so Paul addresses that. From chapter 8 through this chapter, there's been a sort of a predominant theme. And the predominant theme has been this aspect about what about idols? Now, could you imagine, I mean, of all the things that Paul could have written about, all the things that people could have asked him about, and all the things that God could have made sure stayed and kept through the test of time that made it into our Bible, three chapters are in essence primarily dedicated to this theme. Wouldn't it be strange if there was that much time given to something that has no relevance to us whatsoever? Consider this. An idol in its simplest sense replaces God in one of or more than one of five areas. God wants to be your purpose and the giver of your purpose. God wants to be your power. God wants to be your peace. God wants to be your passion. And God wants to be your pleasure. I'll say that again. God wants to be your purpose. God wants to be your power. God wants to be your peace. God wants to be your passion. And God wants to be your pleasure. The problem is when something else competes with Him, the moment God says, let go, and you don't want to let go, it becomes an idol. The problem is, what could be an idol for Jenny may not necessarily be an idol for Charlene. What could be an idol for Jenny could probably wouldn't possibly be an idol for Eduardo. That wasn't recorded. Uh, There are things in our life that we could make special that somebody else might not. So there are certainly areas. But then there are temples. Areas that have a much more broad spectrum bondage. Things that take over a person's purpose. That take over, that people gladly trade God in for their promised power. Things that we would hand in God and seek this for peace. Things that compete over our passion. Things that become 
our greatest pleasure. My children can become an idol. My wife can become an idol. This church can become an idol. And I know people that that kind of stuff happens. It becomes our purpose or our passion. Pornography for many becomes an open bondage. It's like the perfect storm. You want to sin? The easiest way to sin is to become anonymous. There are dens for that bondage that people can go to in our city. They are set up for no other purpose than to make money. And they serve no other purpose than to put people in bondage. And we see the ramification, the fallout. Destroyed marriages. There are a lot of things that fall out. None of it's good. There are thousands of bastions in this city alone to other kinds of bondages where people have had a hard day and instead of praying, they go get wasted. They become bastions of bondage. They may not look like an idol's temple, but understand, in those days, idol temples basically served two base purposes. Sex and intoxication. In Corinth, you could get both in the same house. But the gods that were worshipped were primarily for that purpose, at least on a physical sense. You could seek power, and in this country, there is God seems impotent, but we would rather find books of spells. We've had a decade of that here. The issue is not the lost. Paul is not writing to the lost. Paul is writing to the saved, to the believers in the church in Corinth, Greeks. No epistle in the New Testament is written to the lost. I challenge you to, to prove me wrong. It'll say to the saints, to the brethren. I don't write this because you don't know the truth, but because you do know the truth. God writes the epistles as ways of instruction to believers. He writes the Gospels, perhaps, very much the case to start with unbelievers, people who don't know this Jesus. See, what God knows better than we do is that God doesn't want to argue over topics of discussion, over moral standings and issues, until people can come to meet Jesus. And the world wants to argue over all those things. And we'll get so quick to argue with them, we won't even talk to them about Jesus. On the other side of it, once you've given your life to Christ, God assumes you want to become like Him. God assumes you don't want to just skate out of hell. What a radical different view that is from a lot of what's taught in contemporary Christianity. 
This idea that God is just there to save you from hell, but then He's really not involved in your life. There's no romance. There's no relationship. It's just kind of, this is what we do. We come to church because isn't that what we're supposed to do? But Jesus knows that the moment you say yes to Him, you not only are born again, you are enrolled in the school of Jesus. You become a student. Another word for that is disciple. Mathitikos, it just means student. And God wants every believer to become a student, a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. God wants that for every one of us. And Jesus had said in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, (coughs) excuse me, verse 35, that you know how they'll even know you're enrolled? You won't have a student ID. You'll have a mannerism. And that mannerism is love for one another. It doesn't even say love for the lost. He says, by this the world will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. See, to be a student of Christ, knowing that a student will be like his teacher, I should assume that I would want to become more like him. In these chapters, 1 Corinthians 8 through 10, the primary issue really isn't the idol house. The real issue is the motivation. And people so misquote these verses for the very opposite purpose, but won't read through it. In chapter 8, he says then, now concerning things offered to idols, and he says, an idol's really nothing. We get that. It's not a real God. But by verse 10, it says, but if a person sees you eating in that temple, that idol temple, will not their conscience be defiled. Won't you stumble them? Now we're talking about a new believer. Now understand, it doesn't say if they see you worshiping in that temple. It says if they see you eating. And this becomes the fun thing. Someone's, and I'll just, I'm going to go right for the throat of this in some cases. Someone, you know, we're like, we just go to the club, but we don't really get drunk. We're not really worshiping there. What we really do is we're just kind of eating there. But that's exactly what Paul is saying. Is it okay to do that? Is it okay? Well, what Paul's going to say is, if what you're looking for is, is it okay, it's okay. The question isn't, is it okay? The question, what's your motivation? In chapter 9, he takes it this far. In verse 19, look at it with me. He says, though I am free from all men, and the idea of that is judgment from all men, I have made myself a servant to all for this purpose, that I might win the more. To the Jews, to those without the law, to those that are weak, I've made myself all things to all men, that I might save some. See, get the idea here that Paul, when he gave his life to Christ, something really strange happened. He gave his life to Christ. Not just his death. And when he gave his life to Christ, he said, now it's your, you can do what you want. You can shape it, re-motivate it, and re-evaluate it so that your priorities become my priorities. And something really wacky happens. Because the moment that Jesus really gets a hold of my being, all of a sudden, you become important. Until that point, I was important. 
What's amazing is the only person who loves me more than me is God. The only person who is better at it is Him. He's perfectly knowledgeable. He's perfectly strong. He only wants my benefit. And I have a really good track record of hurting me. Why would I want to take care of me when I'm already so well taken care of? That frees me up to serve you. And Paul then goes, now listen to this. Concerning things offered to idols, well, what if you're going to be in, a, in one of those situations? You could be in the very temple. If you're going to be in the temple, you're going to stumble somebody. You need to know that. You may think you have freedom. But let me just say my example, because by the time we get to chapter 11, verse 1, he's going to say, so follow my example. Do what I do. Could you imagine saying that? Imitate me as I imitate Christ. He's like, you know what? In this, I've, I'm an example. That's not Paul being cheeky or cocky. That's Paul actually saying, in this area, I think I'm doing all right. I'd like you to follow me in this. This is an area where I have given my life over to them. Because, listen, I've given my life to Jesus for them is the best way to put it. I've given my life to Christ. And the moment I've given my life to Christ, now my life is given for others. And so I look and I see this and I realize, why would I want to do that? Oh, I have the freedom to do that. But if I have the freedom, I have the freedom to kick you in the head. Gravity permits me that. Years of of combat training have trained me in that area. And if I get older, I could just kick Hugo because he's shorter. I have the physical freedom to do that. But, who is that going to benefit? I'd say, well, I was born that way. And I could probably tell you I was born pretty violent. But out of love, Hugo's more important to me than just a sparring partner. So Paul then says, then listen, I've made myself a servant of all for the purpose of winning them. And then he goes from that to run in the race to win. Do you get it? The whole theme still is care about others. Now run the race to win. Now here's the ironic thing. When we run a race, the focus is on us. We're not even trying to compete with anyone else. We're just trying to give our personal best. That's the difference between running in every other sport. Is that in every other case, usually there's somebody else to beat and you're looking for that. But in running, to be honest, unless you're Usain Bolt, chances are all you do is your eyes are on the finish line and you're giving everything you've got. You just want to give your personal best. That's the idea here. And the idea is, look it, I want you to do that in regards to people. Paul goes, I want to be an Olympic servant of Christ. Therefore, I want to run to win. I'm going to discipline my body. I want dominion over this body because I really, really, really just want to win more people. See, when I run to win, what I want to win is you. That's what I want to win. Ironically, to people who are really still debating. In chapter 10, he goes, let me give you an example so you should know this. Hey, though, if we look at the example in Exodus, all walked under the same cloud. All were walked through that same sea. All ate of the same food, drank of the same drink, still you know, feasted off of that rock, drank from that rock, and yet most of them, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness because God was not well pleased with them. So you want to look at that example and go, well, I'm safe. Compared to who? Exodus? Therefore, and it says this, you think you stand, you better be careful or you're going to fall. Because no temptation has beset you except what is common to man. You need to know this about temptations. They're common, but they're defeatable. They're escapable. They are bearable. Excuse me. They are bearable. And therefore, and he says, listen, 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 listen. Therefore, flee idolatry. Don't you think it's interesting that that's been the theme through all of this? 
even though we can pull out these beautiful little nuggets and put broad spectrum application to it, the whole theme primarily has been in selflessness and the sort of setting has been this issue of, of idolatry. Hey, you may think you have the freedom. Hey, you have the freedom to go and get a, you know, go and get a cocktail, go get a mojito in a strip bar, but who is it going to benefit? Legally, well, most of you here probably won't be arrested for it. But it will benefit none of you. But you go, but wait a minute now. If that becomes the case, then my life will be governed by others. Well, no, actually, you got, your life will be governed by one. It will be a blessing to others. There's the difference. Therefore, flee idolatry because there are only two cups. And that's where we left off last week when we had communion, if you remember. <coughs> Listen. In Psalm 75, verse 8, it says, In God's hand there was a cup. And the wine is red and it is mixed and he pours it out. Surely to the dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink it down. In Isaiah 51, 17, he calls it the cup of his fury, the cup of trembling. In Isaiah 51, 22, he calls it the cup of trembling, the cup of my fury. In Jeremiah 25, 15, he calls it the cup of fury. In Revelation 14, 10, he calls it the cup of his indignation. That is one cup. That's the choice. There's a second cup. In Psalm 116.13, it tells us, I will take up the cup of salvation. Jeremiah 16.7 calls it the cup of consolation. But you need to understand, when Jesus was in the garden and he said, Father, if there be any other way, let this cup pass from before me. The cup was the cup of horror, of indignation, of dishonor, of mocking, of desolation, of destruction. But understand what Jesus said. In the simplest sense, if there is any other way that we could keep Eduardo from drinking the cup of judgment, then me drink it. Then please don't let me drink it. The reason why you can drink of the cup of salvation is because Jesus drank your cup of judgment. That's why. And he goes, would you want to drink both cups? Why would you want to drink both when Jesus took the bad so you can have the good? So here's the irony. You just don't see, I just don't see the gangrene, the cancer that these sins are. And so we ask, is it okay? Is it okay to have a little this, to do a little that. You'd say, well, Pastor Tony, that sounds like a, a legal trip. Something is legal. Let me think this out. If man is as evil as you'll let him be, you legislate, you legislate boundaries. With the purpose of a punishment, because with no conscience to drive us, we need punishment to stop us from breaking the rules. But what Scripture teaches us is that we as Christians should never have to be driven by the law because we're so driven by love, we don't need boundaries to keep us to go into further evil because we're too busy running in the other direction to try to be a blessing. There's the irony. Legalism is 
universalizing conviction with the purpose of trying to hedge in people who may not have the same weaknesses. But if we were all driven by love, we wouldn't even have to worry about it. So when he concludes this portion, he comes up with a simple, single single statement in verse 24. Let no one seek his own, but rather the other's well-being. By the way, the word seek here, for what it's worth, the word here is the word zetaho. And zetaho, by the way, means to seek something for great gain. Matter of fact, it's often used in the idea of gathering or chasing after something to worship it or to adore it or to cherish it or prize it. For instance, in Matthew 6.33 when it says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, that's the same word. And all the other things that God spoke about prior will be added to you. In Matthew 13.45 when it says, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who is out seeking precious pearls. It's chasing after something. It's scanning something valuable to it that it may hold that thing Precious to itself. Does that make sense? Now, I don't know what that would be for you, but you do. I've learned this. Whatever is important to you and to me, we become opportunists in. If there was something you really loved, you would place yourself near that item if you could. So you scan through the gum trees. You scan through the Craigslists, you go through Amazon, you go for whatever to find that thing and you're seeking to find that thing, perhaps even at a lowest price, but you've you got to have that new thing, whatever that thing is. Because you're chasing after it. He says, look it, you're either going to, in the ultimate, going to be chasing after you or others. That's what's in your scope. Could you imagine if we really sought to pursue others with that type of value, what it would look like in here? So if we put two bowls here, play this out with me. We had two bowls here, and I woke up this morning, and I said, okay, everything I do is going to seek something. It's either going to seek me or seek to bless someone else. So I got up this morning, and what's the first thing I did? In a perfect world, maybe... Well, actually, in my case, I like to get up. I like to read. That's the first thing I like to do. And I'm not a natural reader anymore. So I, I, I have my phone next to my, my, my bed. And it's, I've even reminded it says Holy Bible on it so that I don't check texts or, or emails because Mary will text late or whatever. So I won't read that until afterwards. But I pop open and I'm going to read my Bible first. Now, the reason, to be honest, the reason I do that is because I know the jerk I can be without reading first. It really changes me throughout the course of the day. Okay, so maybe that's a bean in the good one. I take a shower. I'll be honest. Do you think I really take a shower for you? I take a shower for me. Now, you might be thankful that I shower, but I spend enough time in front of the mirror, which is never really that good, or at least hypothetically. Make sure all my hair is in the right place before I put my hat on. But in all of that, it's like, okay, that's a bean for me. That's a bean pursuing the, the prize of me. And then I get out. The choices I make, where I go, what I eat, why I eat it, where I eat it, who I call, who I don't call, what I do with my spare time. I'm sitting on a train. What do I do? I've got a half hour, maybe an hour to get to the next stop. Do I read my Bible? Do I plot out a couple texts to tell people that I'm praying for them? 
Do I list that? There's a lot of things. There's a lot of opportunities. I've got a whole hill of beans here I can put in one or the other. And by the time the day is done, where, where is it? What if we did that one day? We just kind of went, okay, where's the bean go today? Where's this bean going to go? This decision. Every, every decision we make is a bean in one of those two. Think it. Okay, I've got a few extra minutes. What do I do? I could go straight home, and I know if I go straight home, my wife's going to have a sore back. I'm probably going to need to take care of that. Do I do it? Which, where, and I'm not, I'm, there are times where I can almost see myself going, hmm, hmm, hmm. But I think I'm like this really great selfless person. How about you? How about yourself? You don't have to affirm me. That's not the point. Because otherwise I've already just put a bean in mind, didn't I? I think it's look at You want to say, well, I, I have the freedom to do this. But where's the bean going? I can do that, but where's the bean going? And he goes, what if you were actually more precious to me than I was precious to me? What would that look like? How would that affect my prayer life? And I'm praying, oh God, bless me, bean for me. Lord, and bless my day, bean for me. Make my day comfortable, Lord, bean for me. Make sure that I make every bus and train, bean for me. Don't let it rain until I'm in the train, bean for me. You know, and it's like by the time I'm done, there's no more room for the, you know, it's like, I've, I'm, it's like my prayers are all just, Lord, bless me, bless me, bless me, bless me. Oh, yeah, and then there's that person who's like on the death's door, and this person's really suffering, and I like throw in like a side comment at the end. They get like a part of a bean. They get tofu, you know, like that kind of rotted bean stuff at the end. But all the good beans, they made it into mine. Really? Even my spare money, where is it going? Beans for me, beans for you. I mean, think about what I could do with it. It's like, wow. And, you know, personally, I love to break bread with people. That's like a, one of my favorite things. I don't know, there's just something to me that's just transcending about being able to sit there and have a meal and just be with people and talk just talk. Not even like, oh, you know, lay on the couch and let's work this thing through. Now, there are times for that as well, but to be able to just be among people and to just live and breathe, because when you do that, people, you risk the fact that they see you for real human beings, but they also call you when they need something because they know they can. That's extra money. It's okay. When you're sitting and you're talking to somebody, you know, you know what God does to bless me? I go to places and they give me things to eat or give me things to drink. It's amazing I'm not shaped like an orange. But I think part of it is, is that the Lord knows our income and so he just drops the overhead by giving me stuff. I've had to learn how to swallow coffee. Notice I didn't say drink because, <coughs> because half of the places I go, that's what they give. But it, you know what? I would drink dirt, which is almost the same thing to me. But um, just, just to be able to sit and talk with you, What if, what if we just simply prayed that? Lord, could you make people more precious than me in my own heart? And let me, with every spare moment, every girth of my prayer, every spare pent and two, let it go someplace cool. Because you know, whether we know it or not, we're going to be spending eternity together. It's kind of cool to invest in that now. 
Because I guarantee you, we will not be able to do this in heaven. I won't be able to take you out to lunch in heaven. At least that I'm aware of. I certainly won't be able to evangelize there. So listen, let's put it to practice in regards to this. If I really cared about people, what would that look like? How would that change my decisions? Verse 25 says, we'll eat whatever is sold in the meat market. Asking no questions. Now understand the meat market. There were some that had sacrificed the meat to idols. There are other people that just, weird as it is, sold meat. And what he says in the simple sense is, well, don't ask. You are not responsible for information you don't have. Now, I'll be, I'll be honest. In America, there are certain lobbying groups that fund things like abortion. And to be this applies in that sense, in my heart. And if it's like, hey, if you, we want you to know if you buy this, it, you know, this much is going to go help fund another abortion clinic, I guarantee you I am not going there. I don't care what it is. But I will be honest with you. Notice it, it says, by the way, asking no questions. I don't know if anyone really does any favor by spreading rumors that everything's owned by the Mormons. Have you learned that? Like it, I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable how many emails and texts, and f- they're always forwarded, right? Along, and then at the end of it, it says something like, if you really want harp, you know, innocent harp seals to die, and you want all of your children to die from horrible, painful deaths, then just don't forward this email or whatever, right? You know, if you really are a caring, loving Christian, and you really believe Jesus died, then you'll forward this to everyone on your contact list. And I'm like, well, I, I don't believe that I'm going to be backed into that corner. But when it's like, you know, well, did you hear that this is owned by this and that's Well, if it says here, do it and ask no questions, the point is, you really need to look at, until someone volunteers that information, just live in, the idea of it is, all the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to Him anyways. But as long as I know I'm not tripping someone's conscience, it's not a big deal. The moment though they say, this was, this is, this money's going to go to a, to a group that's just going to shut down, you know, Christianity, or we're here for this purpose. And you can do that in Israel too, by the way. Certain things will fund groups that are anti-missionary groups. I guarantee you no money of mine is going to go there. I have seen church groups that have given over a million American dollars to the government where 60% of it has gone to the Yalachim, which is the anti-missionary, the primary anti-missionary group of Israel. That's what happens when you close-mindedly just toss money, especially at a government, with all due respect, any government, you know, some of it's not going to go well. But if we loved people, we would be more concerned about that. When we were helping the people in Gaza, we didn't give to the PA, the Palestinian Authority, because we knew where that money would go. We went to the people. Isn't that more dangerous? Yeah, but you get to know them. You get to see faces. And there's something really cool about giving a bar of soap to a kid, to be honest. that Some of them, to be honest, it's the first bar of soap they've seen. Giving them coloring books that have Jesus in it. And shampoo. Candy. We would go to the IDF base, the Israel Defense Force base, and we would give candy to the soldiers. And you say, that sounds such a strange thing. These are soldiers. But they're 18 years old. It's amazing how many of them are like, look at, but I want you to know this. As we're going to see here in a moment as we end this, 
I'm going to pray. You're going to, if you're going to let me onto your base, I'm going to pray. We have three or four different plaques from different military groups that we were able to get onto. And when we did, it's like, look, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray in the name of Jesus. Well, you can't pray in the name of Jesus. Well, then me and my candy are going elsewhere. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I mean, it's amazing how that candy talks. But... It's like, look, I'm not telling you, you have to sit in my circle, but I want to pray for you. And as a Christian, I am told to do everything in the name of Jesus. I am not going to bail, I'm not going to bail on that. So what happened is even the Orthodox would stand in their doorways, but they would listen to the prayer. But there's something cool about that. It's amazing what happens when you don't back down on what is important, because if you really are important, I'm not going to shell Jesus because you're too important for me not to tell you about him. Does that make sense? So listen, all the earth is the Lord's. Here's, what, here's the psalm. Listen to it because it actually speaks about idols. Psalm 24, it's a psalm of David, and this is what it says. And if you want, flip in your Bibles because we're almost done. So flip in your Bibles to this if you can. If you're new to the Bible, close your Bible up, open it right in the middle. Chances are that's Psalms. And then try 24. It's only 10 verses. There's a teaching among the church, not this one, by the way, that says that when Adam and Eve sinned, they gave the earth to Satan. It's his. Well, no. (laughs) Read verse 1 with me. The earth is the Lord's. In the Hebrew, the literal rendering would be, the earth is the Lord's. It belongs to him. He owns it. And all its fullness. The world and all those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. By the way, something we're still discovering is that a lot of this that we're sitting on right now is floating. This one's an easy one because we're on an island. We're aware of that. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? He with clean hands and a pure heart who has not lifted up his soul to an idol. Do you see it there? nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from God of his, from the God of his salvation. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Think about that while the band plays. Selah. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Oh, who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Lift up, you everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Think about that while the band plays. And he quotes that psalm twice. In 26 and 28. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It ultimately belongs to God. And if it's not going to hurt someone's conscience, and this guy's, this, I mean, you don't know. You're just buying meat. You buy the meat. There you go. Verse 27 says, if any one of you, here's the second situation. If any one of you who does not believe invites you to dinner and you desire to go. So all of a sudden, there's somebody and her name is Sari. And she invites Eduardo and Jamie and Daniel to her house with her husband. Prada, and they're going to come and they're going to have this lovely korma. And it says, if you desire to go on whatever they set before you, ask no questions for conscience sake. Notice it says ask no question. 
I try to tell my children that so they never ask, what is this? That's never good. We often say, if you're called to follow, you're called to swallow. But if they say, oh, this was sacrificed to idols, then don't eat it. Even if it's the best korma you've ever smelled. Or the best jafrizi, where it's spicy and your nose hairs are singeing as you smell. I'm sorry, I shouldn't develop this. Um, The moment, and here's the point. Is that God loves that person and he has, in your desire, deployed you to their house. And the blade in the soil is that moment where they realize you really are and your God is different. Because most people out there have deluded themselves to thinking everything's cool. Everything's cool. Your God's my God. We all have the same God. Maybe yours is a little more Jewish or American or, I don't know, Spanish if you go with the medieval times or whatever. But, you know, it's like, no, no, no. Let me just say something. Your God kills everybody. Mine raises the dead. How is that same? My God's one guy, three and one. Yours is three. It's 33 million. And I'm not trying to be rude, but I just want to make sure. Can I just politely, how do I politely tell you we are not worshiping the same? Oh, everyone worships the same thing. Can I, and it's like you really, really want to be like flat, cold, Middle Eastern and just be straight with it. I mean, you know what they say? Is everyone worships the same God. And you're like, yes, everybody but us. Because <laughs> we actually worship the different God. And all of yours is the God of destruction, whether you're no one or not. Do you worship the God to get him close to you? Do you worship him because he loves you? Do you worship him because you just want to spend time with him and he wants to spend time with you? Is the place where you get to be a place where you get him as your reward? Is that, did he actually save you? Did he actually call you by name? Say that he loves you, die for you, pay for your sins, raise from the dead, and no. So how exactly is your judging God where you perform and maybe it's good enough for him the same as my God who died for me and wants me to receive him? It's completely the opposite. But you're like, well, I'm not very confrontational. I'm British. Well, then what do you do? Don't fake a coma. Be honest. Say, with all due respect... I cannot eat this. Make yourself spiritually allergic. How's that? Hey, this is a country where we can do that. I want you to know I'm idle intolerant. It just gives me like the willies. Not your conscience. And it's korma. It's it's jafrizi. Not your own, but for the other person. Because for the first moment in their life, somebody is going to stand up and say, I want you to know what you're doing really affects me in a negative way. And I love you too much for you to actually be deluded. Let me tell you the story of a friend of mine. And it fits right into this. Drug user, like most of the people at my school when I was in secondary school. The drug of choice in our school during that time were hallucinogenics, which means you, and basically a lot of them basically did this thing where they wore this headband, ironically enough, like you couldn't tell, the only guys that wore headbands did this, and then they put this, this drug that would sort of seep into their forehead and then they'd put it on their eyelids and then they put it on their tongue, and they would then start to see things. 
They wouldn't see things for the way they were, and they would see things that weren't there. And this particular friend of mine decided that the entire world was flat. We're not talking about ideologically. We were on the second floor of our school building. And I remember him talking to me and me warning him, there's some steps right there. And he's like, no, 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 no. That's an illusion. That was the last we saw of him alive. He fell down that flight of steps over the railing by the time it was done and landed below in the cafeteria. That was the end of lunch. He was so deluded that he couldn't see the danger in front of him. And the worst part to me was that half of the friends that he was around at that moment were cheering him on. They thought it would be cool to see him fall. Now, the good news is, and I can confidently and full wholeheartedly tell you I was not one of them, is that those people have to live with that. Can we agree that was evil? Now, granted, I don't think anyone could possibly have foresaw what was going to happen. But that was a temporary thing. Even though it was death, he still had an eternity to deal with. What if we did that with eternity? People are falling down the steps and we don't want to tell them because we don't want to ruffle their feathers and say, look, I don't want to sound... It's like, well, you're going to sound closed-minded. You know what? Anybody who knows the truth is closed-minded. You better be thankful your doctor's closed-minded. He's like, you know what? You're sick, but I'm convinced that one week on amoxicillin ought to do it. But let's stop being so closed-minded about it. Maybe you should just rub peanut butter on the top of your lip for a week and see how that works. I don't want to give you amoxicillin because that's kind of closed-minded. They're kind of pills in the entertainment. So why don't you try something new? Shave your head and go walk through a field of bees. See if that works. Come on. I'm open-minded. And in the end of it all, you start thinking, this guy's a lunatic. Why don't we think that in regards to Christianity? You know why? Because people are not humble enough to realize the peril that they're in. If you are drowning in the ocean and I throw you a life ring, I guarantee you, you're not going to say, excuse me, can I have a blue one? If you really know you're drowning. The world out there doesn't really care. And the reason is they don't realize the peril they're in. I mean, that's just the truth of it. And when we are there and someone invites you, so here's the three different places. We have the idol temple. He goes, just don't go there because you're going to trip people up, right? Go to the market. Well, buy what you want to buy. But if somebody, but if that person tells you, well, then back off. On the third case, you're at someone's house and they serve you something and you're like, this looks really yummy. You start to eat it and they're like, oh yeah, this was actually sacrificed to Kali, the god of destruction for which we get Calcutta. And you're like, oh, I'm really sorry, but I really can't eat the rest of this. It was really good. Could you make this again without sacrificing to an idol? Because I just want you to know, I love you so much, I'm even going to give up one of the things I love the most, this food. That's the point. And to be honest, for some of us, that would be quite a statement. But if I partake with thanks, well, then why am I evil spoken of for the food that I give thanks? Hey, look, it's not about that. And this is how we conclude it. I have three challenges on any decision you want to make. 
Because he said, by the way, look at, he, he said, all things, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 23, that's how this started. All things are lawful, they're permissible, but they're not two things. And I'll conclude with that as we go to this. They're not help. It, the decision is, are, are they helpful? The word helpful for what it's worth, it's a beautiful word. The word there's the word sumfero, and su means together. Fero means to bear or to carry. Now get this. How many of you, honestly, if you can be willing to be honest with me and a little bit candid, a little bit candid, how many of you in the last two weeks have had some moment where you've just felt really burdened, like whatever the situation was, was just on top of you? You know, you were just like, man, things are really heavy right now. They're on, they're on me. Okay, look around. You're just being honest. Now understand the word some Pharaoh is when something is heavy and somebody else says, hey, can I help take part of that? That's the word that's used here. Do you see the corporation in that? He says, look, you may be, you may have the freedom to go do something or you can make, you could put that bean in yours and go do something you feel you have the freedom for or you could put the bean in the other and when you put the bean in someone else's, what you're doing is actually helping carry a burden that they may be having at that moment. So all things may be permissible, but man, wouldn't it be great if we actually picked things that were helpful, lightened the load on somebody else's life? What would happen if every one of us lived that way? Could you imagine what it would be like in here? Now, here's the interesting thing. Some of you didn't raise your hand. Isn't that true? Now, either that's because some of y'all are liars or because some of you really didn't have any really heavy circumstances. Guess what? Maybe that's your season to help carry someone else's so that when things flip, it'll be your turn. Do you get it? And then he says, hey, it may be lawful, but not everything edifies. And the word there is the word oikodoma. Oikos means house. Doma is like dome or a roof or an, a level on it. Now understand the taller the building, the greater the honor. And the idea of it is, look, at I could put a bean in mine, but it's not going to make my house any better. I could put a bean in yours. I could build you up. And to build you up, there'd be more honor. You're more established. Because maybe you've had a weak moment and I'd love to come help you. To come pick and prop you up at a moment when you're kind of not standing the way you could. Hey, don't we all get hit at times? You love people and sometimes they turn into something you never expected. Things seem like so safe and then the rug gets pulled from you. You don't even know what to hap- what's happening. And the problem is, at a moment like that, if we're all busy trying to f- sort of sit in our own little islands, you have to seek someone out. And nobody wants to do that. On the other side of that, if we're all busy actually seeking, it's like I got the bean, I just want to know which one of you can I put it in? And you see that moment? And let's face it, who wants to ask for that kind of help at a humbling moment like that? And then I sometimes you could just have people that are just like, hey, you know what? Maybe I'm wrong, but I'm going to risk it. You seem kind of like your shoulders are a little heavy right now. Can I just pray for you? Do you think any one of us in here would be insulted? Now, maybe at first we're like, wow, do I really look like that? But even if things are good, I'll take the prayer. How about you? So listen, no matter what you do, here's our three lipids test at the end of this. No matter what you do, and no matter what I do, look at the end of this. Here's the first of the three. No matter what we do, do it to the glory of God. Can I do it to the glory of God? That's verse 31. Do you see it? Can I do it and show God for who he really is by doing this? So you're like, well, how about I'm debating between two jobs. One to be a construction worker. Second to be an exotic dancer. I really don't think you can do that to the glory of God. 
But if it's like, I don't know, should I be a plaster or a carpenter? If you can do both to the glory of God, you may have both as options. The beautiful part is God's more concerned about us glorifying him than we are about whether we swing a hammer or hose down things with plaster. And the second case, and by the way, here's our other two verses, and flip there so we can conclude this, Colossians chapter 3. If where you are, go to the right. After the, after the Corinthian letters, it's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and then Colossians. It's only four chapters. It's not big. Colossians chapter 3. Oh, I love that sound. I assume you're not flipping to the maps. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17. No matter what you do, in word or in deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Can I do it in Jesus' name, thanking the Father? If there's something, you cannot sin in Jesus' name. The reason is, if we just looked at his name, Jesus Christ, if we put it in a simple sense, Jesus, Yehoshua, means God our Savior. Christ means he's our boss. So he's our Savior and Lord. So I can't say, I'm going to do this for me. I don't care what God says, but I'm going to do it in the name of my Lord. Exactly how does that work? The third, same chapter, verse 23. No matter what you do, do it heartily. As under the Lord. Do you know what it means to do something heartily? It means to do it with your heart, is the idea. Let's face it, the world has seen enough heartless worship, heartless church, heartless Christianity. A person sitting out there like this. Take a track, take a track, this will get me closer to heaven. They're not even looking at you. They're like, uh. And you're like, well, what is this? Is this a free burger or a mojito or is this actually get get to heaven what and it's like and, and they're watching that and you know this happens they, you know, it's like you come to the, you're going to some place and everyone's like this and they're like we stand and lift up our hands the joy of the lord is our strength hey how you doing it's good to see you again yeah, yeah. bow down worship him now yeah it's great to see you oh, yeah glory Lord Almighty. And someone walks in and they're like, wow, that is a group of people ravished by an awesome God. What if everything I did, can I do it heartily? Can I do it with my heart? Can I do it in the name of Jesus? Can I do it to the glory of God? And then... From this point on, you may just not ask me, Pastor, is it okay to play tennis? Can you play tennis to the glory of God? Or are you one of those people that if you lose, you're going to just chuck that racket at the other person, hope they trip in the net? Then I don't recommend you play tennis. But play it to the glory of God. Some of you can't play board games. I've watched some of you. We have this game that's an Uno game where everyone gets up and changes places and you have to lay down your cards. And I've watched people hold their cards and like, ha, 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 ha. Whoa. And you're like, whoa, the flesh just came on the table. Now, some things you need to do, you're like, well, I just don't know if I can read my Bible heartily. Yes, you can ask the Lord. Lord, let me read this with my heart. 
Let me go to church with my heart. Let me go. Let me walk the streets with, with my heart, giving you the glory, Father, in the name of my, my Jesus, my Lord and Savior. And I'm going to be thankful. What if, and look at it, it says, whatever you do. Could you imagine? That means everything we're supposed to do this way. Could you imagine? Well, I mean, can you think of five things we've done today? Can I think of five things that I've done with this? To the glory of God, in the name of Jesus, heartily today. Versus everything. You're like, well, that just sounds weird. Putting on your shoes with the glory of God. No, when you're in love with the Lord, don't you just do that? You're like, Lord, I just love you. Thank you, my shoe fits. That's goofy, but it works. Because when you're in love, it just works that way. Now look at it, as we pray. It boils down to this again. No matter what you do. Who's important? Where's the bean going? In the NFL. Because that's how this whole thing started. Remember that? Are we seeking our own? What's really precious? Are we seeking our own or are we seeking others? And that's what I want to pray. For we here who know the Lord. Now, again, I want to remind you, God does not tell an unbeliever this. He tells his believers this. What he tells an unbeliever is, you need Jesus. You need to accept his gift. And if you're willing to accept his gift, he's going to set you free. He's going to make you a brand new creation. He's going to make you like him. He's going to put his spirit inside of you. And then this is what he wants to do, is that he wants to love other people through you. But if you are a Christian and have accepted him, then this isn't a suggestion. It doesn't say, hey, you might want to consider this. Let's think about it. We'll take a vote on it later. He says, look, this is a command. Let no one. The fact that it says let means there's a part of you inside that wants to do this and it's looking for permission. The Spirit of Christ dwelling in you wants to make other people more important in your life. Isn't that a great thought? Will you pray with me, please? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful book. I thank you for this amazing letter. And Lord, in 1 Corinthians, as we're now challenged to get away from being fleshly, to stop looking like the world, to stop behaving like the world, to stop competing like the world, but rather instead to start looking like you, Jesus. Well, then please make us that way. Would you please tonight take us, take our hearts, take our minds, and revolutionize us, Lord. Let, let us, as a fellowship, may we be known for our selflessness, for our love for one another. <clears throat> what you didn't even say was the proof that we graduated, but rather that we're even just in school at all. Forgive us, Lord, for how we've somehow diluted our view of what Christian maturity looks like to something sardonic and skeptical and cynical and bitter and fat and lazy and bloated and lethargic. Numb. That is just, that is a person dying, not a person thriving. But Lord, make us people tonight, tonight, that are transformed. Jesus, we confess that you died on the cross to pay for who we are as sinners to pay for our sin and our guilt and our shame. You drank the cup of indignation so that we would not have to drink that cup of judgment. And then you offer us the other, the cup of salvation. And at our choice, we say yes. Jesus, yes. 
Yes to Your gift. Yes to Your Lordship. Yes to Your saving. And I thank You for the honor it is, Lord. The honor to be here as a servant of You. Please now, Lord, may we consider others more important, more valuable, Lord. Put the prize of others on our heart and make us people who love the way You've ordained. In Jesus' name, Amen.